Okay, hello all. Welcome to another episode of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. Uh, this should probably be, no, it will be, our last episode of 2022. And we're going out with a bang because our guest tonight is the one and only Chris Montross of Dark Horse Herpticulture. Uh, those of you who listen to the podcast know we've had two episodes that were lost to technology. And one of those, unfortunately, was Chris's. But uh, this go-around... We're, we're in here finally, we're recording, uh, we've tested equipment, and knocking on the wood of my desk here, hopefully everything goes well. So um, before we get into the episode with Chris, it's our typical um, process to go about and talk about what's been going on in our worlds the past couple weeks, and we have Matt back from his never-ending workload, <laughs> so... <laughs> So here he is with us. How's it going, Matt? Oh, man, busier than ever. But I think just like everyone in the world right now, I mean, we're all seeing the employee shortage issue getting worse and worse. Um, so, you know, one of the kind of uh, subjective announcements I made recently was just uh, related to cutting back on some of my collection. And part of that is just a you have to do what's best for the animals, but you have to do what's best for yourself to avoid burnout within the hobby itself. And I didn't want to avoid, well, I wanted to avoid burnout. And as a resulting factor, part of my collection is actually going to be getting relocated to Clint Bartley's um, facility as he actually continued on his um, growth within Metazotics. So Clint and I will actually be working towards that come first of the year. But, you know, I, I do have to say... Um, it, it was very relieving and outcoming in terms of some of the outreach that I had after making a post like that in terms of people asking, is everything okay? What's going on? Um, but I think it's one of the more important things, you know, as we, we grow in herpes culture and build up those bonds and family friends, as I would call them, um, it's always relieving to have somewhat of a structure where we can actually reach out to people and have that kind of communication. Um, you know, one of the hard parts for myself and one of the things that I had to actually realize was, I mean, I've built a collection that I think supersedes some of the different uh, animals that we see within our um, global reach, if you will, from handpicking some of the different specimens, whether it relates to some of the locality stuff that we'll talk about today. Um, but also, I think it's more important in terms of keeping those animals in the hobby because so many different animals then get lost. I mean, when you look at things like um, birds, um, different racers, I mean, a lot of stuff Chris even works with here that we'll be talking about tonight. Um, you know, what happens is you see some of this stuff get lost. And once it's lost, it's hard to get brought back into herpetoculture. Yeah. And I mean... I mean, we, we can lose the animals because their habitat goes to hell and they literally don't exist anymore in the form of a locality. Or it's not exactly the easiest thing in the world to get Japanese forest rat snakes here. <laughs> and, and, you know, there's a small meta population of them living in an artificial ark in Indianapolis, Indiana right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but But it's one of those things where... Looking at my collection, looking at where things have gone, um, I had to look myself in the mirror because, you know, you have to have a subset of life um, outside of work. And, and Zach, you and I, we talked about it. I mean, right now, uh, being short half a team, 
you know, I don't know how much people realize, but working, you know, 14, 15 hours a day and then also, you know, six to seven hours each day just for work and then adding in the animals adds a lot of um, stress, right, in terms yeah. of your personal go through. And I mean, one of the biggest things I've always thought about in terms of looking at things is I try to touch every animal at least once a day um, in terms of opening up containers, cages, anything like that to actually see what's actually going on. And if you can't do stuff like that, it's, it's really something you have to look at, you know, and resolve personally of what's best for the animals and what's best for yourself. Oh yeah. hundred percent. And it's also, it's not the easiest decision to make. I mean, I'm sure that there was quite a bit of blood, sweat and tears, but it's also, you have a place for them to go with Clint, which is, you know, you, they're going to be in safe hands. So still hard to make that decision though. I could imagine. What? Yeah. Well, and some of the animals will probably be going to other people too, but for some of the different things, it's not as though I'm just cutting out of the hobby. I'm mm-hmm. still keeping a, a number of animals here. It's just when you look yourself, um, and look at what you've actually been doing. I mean, Kevin Sheehan, um, who we brought on with Texas rats and stuff like that. Um, a a number of my Texas rats will be going to Kevin too, as well to continue on some of those projects. And, you know, when you look at stuff like that, I mean, getting animals into the right people's hands adds a whole nother layer of what we should be doing responsibly in our, in our culture. 100%. So are, are you on any kind of a break? Or is the break just non-existent and you'll see your family on Christmas and New Year's and you're off to the races again? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So interesting enough. So we're recording what? uh, December 18th right now. Yes. Um, Tomorrow I'm working a half a day and I'm working Thursday and have the rest of the week off. But I plan on working probably every day this week. There Um, you go. (laughs) 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 But, you know, that's that's something that I enjoy and that's something yeah. in terms of what when you look at careers, when you look at things of that nature, whenever you're doing something like that, you have to enjoy what you do. Um and I, I can say wholeheartedly that I enjoy what I do. It's just it's amazing right now in the world that we're living in that there are only a handful of people holding this stuff together. Um, <laughs> and it yeah and I think I think a lot of people's grips are getting very loose right now. Yeah. Oh, 100%. 100%. Well, I hope your grip stays firm, my friend. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, You don't implode. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, you know, side swing of that even, too, really want to say thank you um, to everyone that did purchase a hardcover copy of the book. Um, You know, as part of the fundraiser for some of the different research work we'll be doing next year, um, because... Mm -hmm. That itself brings in a whole nother subset of what, you know, we're all working towards in terms of bringing our, you know, herpeticulture, um, scientific realm together to actually do some research in that realm. Yeah. And we are, we're pumped here at West Liberty. I, I announced it in my herpeticulture, herpetology class. And, uh, it was funny. I, um, I had to do recordings of the last series of lectures because I was traveling, uh, which a lot of people know. And so I, I recorded my lectures and then I sent them out, you know, over email and, and in there I had mentioned the different projects that are going to be going on in the spring. And one of them was the, um, the project that we're going to be doing together with Kevin. And I had 
when you make announcements like that, you kind of sit back and, and it, it would be disingenuous for me to say as a professor that I don't have favorites. Like, it is true, people. Your teachers and your profs had favorites, and I have favorites, and I, I don't like pushing my insane workload on the people. I like people to kind of come to it on their own, and the students that, that kind of raised their hand and were like, yo, I want to help with that, you know, I was secretly like, yes, this is great. So we're going to have a great team to get that done, and I'm really looking forward to it. So more on that in 2023. <laughs> yeah. should be. Well, that's probably one of your – that is probably going to be one of my highlights for 2023. Yeah, no, unequivocally. And we'll keep everybody posted um, because it's just fun and it's cool and it's like the good side of herpetoculture because herpetoculture is funding this thing 100%. So you can't – I'm just going to quit there. I'm going to get snarky and preachy, and I don't want to. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, about you know the whole herpetology versus herpetoculture debate. Uh, anyway, okay. Well, I've had I, I don't have that many updates, and then we'll just jump into this. Um, but I got everybody down for cremation. I got them down late. I'm doing this intentionally. Uh, I want to be pulling my guys out later than I ever have. Uh, I know that I'm going to probably be away the second full week of March, and that's normally when I'm like really getting into putting animals together. So I actually put everybody down for brumation on Wednesday. I had a lot of animals in my garage getting ready for it, but everybody's in the infamous corner. I've got my govies there. It's holding it. The govy graft is amazing. It's beautiful. It is right at 51 degrees. So um pretty thrilled about that. But there are several snakes. There's hog nose snakes, gopher snakes, bull snakes, Nerodia, corn snakes, rat snakes, um, and other stuff. My Japanese rat snakes are there. So we got that done. Uh, and this time of year is weird for me. When I put everybody down for brumation, I I get twitchy because I'm used to doing a lot of stuff. So I actually kind of go through and just clean the living hell out of everything. So I, I'm going to be doing that over my winter break. I started that today. And then... Other than that, I have a couple new animals coming in in uh, January. Um, I have a, a pair of, unre- well, doing air quotes, unrelated as much as they can be unrelated, blacktail Kribos uh, from Madison Arvin, which I'm pretty psyched about. Uh, and then uh, Tim Brophy, if those of you may know him, he's an indigo snake breeder, eastern indigo breeder, really, really good guy. You know he listens to the, the podcast. Uh, I realized that we need like the the university collection needed to have eastern indigos if we're doing all this research with eastern indigos as like ambassador animals and things like that but um the paperwork obviously with fish and wildlife uh, is kind of an issue there and then they're not exactly cheap and so uh i reached out to tim and tim was gracious enough to donate uh two animals to the university's collection and they're they're beautiful. Um, I'm going to be testing the one of the like fun questions in Calubroid Land: Dry Market or Hydrodynasties? Which one's better? Um, I am, I am on the uh, what did I say? The underdog side on this because Hydrodynasties will forever be my favorite with the false water cobras. But we shall see. I'm going to be 
raising the Easterns, the Blacktails, and we have the Yellowtails here at the university. So dry markings all over the place now uh, in my world. But that's basically it. And I'm finally on break, and it doesn't feel like it uh, because now is when you do all the extra stuff uh, that you don't get to do when you're a you know teacher, professor. Um, so, yeah, I'll be up here at school tomorrow build it, or helping somebody build a Cayman enclosure. That's all I know, and I have a meeting. But I'm doing the fun stuff now. So, anyway, that's it for our um, introduction time here. I think it's time to jump in. Are you ready, Matt? Let's go, man. Let's Round go, man. two. All right, cool. cool. <laughs> Round two with Chris. So how you doing, uh, Mr. Montross? I'm doing great, guys. All right. Excellent. So um, it's kind of our standard issue, uh, get to know the guest uh, qu- series of questions. And I know you've been on several podcasts, in particular, uh, the, the THN or THP peeps have had you on several times. Um, but... We had you on before. We're going to ask you this question that we did ask you before. Could you kind of introduce us all to your background in herpetoculture and where this all began? Right. Um, I've been told by my parents that this obsession with herps started from stroller age. Um, Apparently, I wouldn't leave the Bear Mountain Zoo little reptile house in the late 70s. as a kid and uh that I, I remember the place i don't remember that particular uh unwillingness to depart but i do remember the place so um and then uh once we moved to florida in at the end of the 70s like there's hurts everywhere so it became a uh an, an easy drawn attention for me to just become obsessed with every snake and lizard and chicken turtle and everything else that was around me at all the time. So, um, I, it, my mother's, uh, aversion to snakes in particular, uh, pretty strong. So that wasn't an option for a long time. And so I did a lot of fish, uh, like through elementary school and, uh, my father let me start, sneaking some snakes and stuff in and that just kind of just turned boat the whole thing and uh just been downhill slash uphill whichever way you want to look at it since then uh so it was uh it's it's been there for a long long time i mean even when i was doing fish as a little kid I, i was still catching snakes and stuff like that you know in the woods around the house and you know brown rolls around the yard and all those kind of things it was uh, no, just a a, a a strong draw for sure. And then uh, it really, I mean, I, I there was a couple pet stores nearby as a kid in the early mid '80s that I was able to get some herps from. Um, but it really turned coat a situation when a friend of mine in would have been about seventh grade, I guess was a member of the Central Florida Herpetological Society. And once I learned about that, I started going to the meetings immediately. And that just opened my world up, getting to go to those meetings and hear some of the greatest herp minds out there come and do lectures and go and tour 
facilities like Wayne Hills and stuff like that. So it was a, um, it was a, it was a really cool uh, turn for me to just look into meeting this classmate that had gotten into the Herb Society through his Boy Scout group, I think. And, uh, and once I got into that, my dad was always taking me to every single meeting. We'd go down and uh, helped help assemble the League of Florida Herpetological Society newsletters um, every month down at, at Wayne Hill's place. And uh, it just solidified that that's basically what I was more than anything, you know, more, more than what I planned on doing, but what I was just, it was a, uh, uh, an instant bond to the, mm-hmm. to the, to the field of herps in, in all capacities. Yeah. So, and, so Chris, like, you know, talking about your dad and sneaking in snakes in your house and stuff like that, just like most of us did probably when we were younger. Um, you know, it's interesting, even today I was having lunch with a older gentleman and he was telling me about how he used to keep uh ring neck snakes in a cigar box when he was a kid. <laughs> um, but what, what pushed you or what drove the passion for colubrids? I've kept a little bit of everything over the years. Um, actually, the first snake I ever kept was a simus. Uh, it was caught on my middle school grounds by a friend um, who kept it for a few weeks, wasn't allowed to keep it, and ended up at my house. All I knew was it was a hog nose at the time. Didn't know any better. But uh, after a few years and didn't have the animal anymore, I obviously realized it was a simus because – the area we had historically they're in the area as well as short tails and stuff like that. We're, we're off in that direction. So from where I lived, so it was, uh, but I've, I, I mean, I, I do colubrids now. I've done colubrids on and off over the years. Uh, I do have a strong obsession with most herps really when it comes down to, I find everything fascinating from, you know, Pac-Man frogs and mega freeze frogs to, you know, my, my, my favorite herp of all times is always going to be basilisks. I just don't have the time or the space to mess with those, um, at, at this point in my life. I, I, I wish I did. I just, just don't. Um, so clubbirds, uh, tend to fit the niche and went back to some of my, you know, my core favorite things that, you know, I liked as a kid, and I found fascinating and comforting as a kid to see and, and grow up catching. And uh, and even though years ago, most of those animals were always considered junk snakes and trash snakes. Like when you go to the Herp Society meetings, and people are wheeling and dealing and trading and buying and selling stuff. You know, killer rat snake was deep junk snake, and by no means anybody had a banded water snake. You know, that they were selling or breeding or anything like that. I mean, they're you know, that didn't exist. I mean, growing up in Central Florida, everybody had access to the importers and the dealers and all that stuff. So everybody was, you know, looking for the most coolest, exotic, you know, crazy sort of thing that they could get their hands on. And so, you know, my attention, of course, was drawn to those same sort of, you know, cool things, you know, quickly. I, I always had some colubrids. I mean, I remember having a bull snake and I remember having, uh, what else? Uh, it, red rats and, you know, by the time I was in high school, I had, you know, multiple morphs of, of, of red rats at, at the end of high school going into college. And 
stuff like that. But I was breeding ornate box turtles and stuff like that in, in high school, though. That was some of the first stuff I bred. It wasn't it wasn't snakes or anything like that. It was it was it was working with the turtles and lizards, which is what I liked the most. I just doesn't hadn't fit my life the past number of years, so it just hasn't uh, come back to being a uh, a thing to work with these days. Wow. So b- before we go to, we have our set of questions we asked, but I just want to bring something up that I think about a lot and you kind of touched on it. So you mentioned that your kind of initiation into herpetoculture was going to herp society meetings. Yep. And it, it seems like, like, like I remember that one of the first things I did when I was an undergraduate is I went up to the Pittsburgh Herpetological Society and gave a talk on a project I did where I tracked an Erodia zipidon, common water snake, northern water snake population for a year. Um, and I just, I loved it because it was in person. And in today's digital age, we, I, I was listening to a podcast recently and people were talking about a sense of community in a Facebook group. And I was thinking that does kind of exist, but at the risk, I mean, we're all kind of, we're all, either approaching or definitely middle-aged. Are we missing something by not having the herp societies the way they used to be? It, I, as far as our I community think, is concerned? I, I, I think we are to some extent, but we also didn't have yes. what we're doing right now. We didn't have exactly. <laughs> you know, we didn't have, it didn't exist. Like I couldn't even call from my house to downtown Orlando area in the next County without it costing money. Like, yeah. you know, it, it's a long distance call. Me just to call somebody who's going to cost my mom, you know, I have 10 bucks, you know, just to make a quick call mm-hmm. to someplace. So, you know, I, I think, you know, the ability for us to connect in the ways that we do, be it social media, be it these podcasts like this, and it, it's, it's opened up the world greatly. I have, I personally appreciate it greatly, even though there are a lot of downsides to it, because a lot of the animals that I work with and that I've always found fascinating and passionate about as a, since, since I was a little kid, like for years, I never worked with them because there was no marketability in getting rid of them if I bred them. You know, I've been up in here in Alabama since I graduated college, so basically all my adult life now. And, you know, we had one reptile show in the state that was routine, but like I couldn't go and bring captive born water snakes, or yellow rat snakes there and even be able to recoup my feeding costs, much less I probably have to give them away and nobody would want. Them. So the ability for, you know, those to be able to connect like we do in different parts of the world with common interests, is just amazing to me. I think it's just phenomenal. You know, we didn't have that back then. Yeah, do we not get the, you know, face-to-face meetings that we had at the Herb Societies and get the phenomenal speakers that I used to get to see, you know, through high school and then the middle school? Yeah, that's that's unfortunate, you know, getting to, getting to see everybody from Ron Whitaker to Paul Moeller to Bill Haas and stuff come and speak at our monthly meetings. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's crazy to have gotten the chance to, to be in the same room as these guys and listen to them talk and and, and, and tell us about their lives and their experiences, you know, but at the same time, we have this 
ability to connect that we didn't back then, and that's God's merits too. It, it, it's just weird. Um, yeah. I think about this a lot because I'm not the best at, at texting. Anybody that has gotten a text from Zach probably at some point thinks, that guy has a Ph.D.? Like, <laughs> I mean, the, 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 and you two have gotten the text and probably thought that. Um, <laughs> um, so, like, I'm not I'm not the best at, at you know, that. And I'm not, I'm not really a social butterfly either. So there's a, there's an irony in, in me bringing up, you know, promoting personal interaction uh, <laughs> when I have a tendency to run away from it screaming. But um, I think a lot of us do. Yes. I think that's why we keep snakes. Uh, yes. But anyway, um, but at the same time, I do, I don't know, I, I feel like there's a way for us to kind of maximize it. I just wish there was a little bit more of a, of just a, like, electronic connection's cool, but it'd be neat or awesome if there was some kind of, like, in, in my world, it's a meeting. So, like, you get, yes. like, all the crayfish nerds get together for a crayfish meeting. And I know we have our shows. Um, but there's something to it actually being not necessarily about selling things, but we're going to go and celebrate something. Yeah, uh, it, it would be. It, I think it'd be cool if we could figure out a way to bring an element of that. But even if it was like the International Herp Society, and I know we have IHS, uh, so I'm kind of, you know, I don't mean them, but I'm just saying. Yeah. And then there was like a Zoom meeting that everybody yeah. kind of dumped into. And I know there's some people that are trying to do that, but it would be kind I of... I mean, there are still herb societies and groups that do get together. I mean, I know it exists. Yeah. I spoke at one in, in Baltimore. You know, I got a friend that's, I think Tom's still creator over the herb group at the Natural History Society of Maryland. And mm-hmm. uh, when I went up and visited him after a bunch of years since college, a handful of years ago now... Uh, He's like, hey, you want to talk? I was like, sure. Let me see if I can figure out how to make a PowerPoint. And <laughs> and I made a PowerPoint, made it work. Yeah. And uh, and then, like, in middle of COVID, the girl that's kind of over all their talks, that they had, you know, put a thing out and said, who do you guys want to see? And they asked to have me come back on. So I did a Zoom talking to them again, you know. That's and cool. so those folks get together, you know, and they have their little – you know, their little meetings and, you know, get and, and, and get some face to face time, which is it was almost weird because it's been decades. Since yeah. Like, and that sort of like at least when I was up there for the one one meeting when I visited him, it was like it was awkward just from the perspective of like, hey, people do this. That's weird. <laughs> I hadn't seen anyone do this in a long time. You know, I mean, it happens in a very informal way at a lot of the shows, but not, you know, not quite the same way that the you know, the club meetings, so to speak. Yeah. Happen. Anyway. So to, to kind of go on a <clears throat> not devil's advocate aspect about this, but I think the, the part that's missing and I think the troublesome part going into the future is really about getting younger people involved from a herb society aspect, because mm-hmm. at the herb society aspect, you know, typically those younger children would be exposed to animals and actually have hands-on contact with it. And I think that's, that's really something that we as a society in terms of our cultures and values, we're, we're really kind of growing apart from. 
because as Zach kind of mentioned, I mean, while we are growing in terms of the number of shows across the country, um, some of the shows themselves aren't presenting it in the manner of which to actually promote and foster that growth for um, younger kids to actually get a part of. So yeah. in terms of education, in terms of conversation of that, um, you know, I know some people try to expose aspects of having hands on with it. But when we're as a culture or society pushing the sales of the animals, we're actually moving away from the aspect of education and actually fostering the growth of the community. Yeah, that element definitely doesn't exist in the way it did, you know, at, 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 at any of the meetings, you know, that I've been to over the years, even though it wasn't necessarily like, oh, here, kids do this. But it was still an educational opportunity. And there was lots of people around with animals and lots of people to ask, you know, questions to about anything in that environment, you know, that's everybody back then, you know, because you didn't have the connectivity. Everybody's just around and they're just psyched to just be around like-minded people, you know, and yeah. so everybody was usually pretty eager to share in whatever capacity they could. And for me, I was just absorbing anything anybody could put before me, even though I was and still am very, you know, not forward not and, and very introverted. Um about, you know, go up and talk to people and stuff like that. But still, I still got a lot out of those those monthly meetings. Right. Well, and, you know, the, the aspect of the devil's advocate that I was kind of pushing towards that I really didn't touch much on is just you're bringing in a number of younger um, children into this hobby, and most of them aren't interested in the natural history of the animals. They're more mm-hmm. interested in, in breeding the animals and the cost of the animals and becoming a YouTube sensation or, <laughs> trying, or um, you know, what, what can I make off of this? When right. really that's a whole different subset of what we really want to promote and how we want to promote that in our, our social stream. Yeah, that certainly is a definitely a different angle to what's happening, you know, uh, uh, because there certainly isn't without those meetings and out, without those higher level people talking about what they've done over the years, you know, and a lot of it, especially back when I was doing it, a lot of that was not heavy captive breeding. It was all just what these people did within the field. Um, you know, you just, you don't, you don't get that now because even though there's lots of kids, like say at Daytona, there's lots of families there and lots of kids. The, uh, I don't know. It's still just like, I want to buy this pet lizard and I want to have this. They're not really learning anything about the lizard. They're not, you know, getting somebody to tell them all about where this beardy or leopard or whatever comes from or anything about it. They have no clue where these animals come from. It would be great if those channels and avenues were more available other than just a generic Googling and getting 5,000 different yeah. angles of information. Yeah, no. It, it, I, I think it would just be interesting if we could kind of merge the two worlds together a bit because we, we've got this beautiful resource with the modern technology of Zoom and Teams, and it's very easy to get people from all over the world together into one spot electronically so long as you have a solid Wi-Fi signal and some kind of device that can pick it up. So, like, that's yeah. that's pretty awesome. Um, there is also something to be said about getting people together so you can actually form 
kind of take the electronic bond you create through a digital world and make it real by getting face to face with people, um, which is interesting because I consider both of you pretty, you know, high up in my herpetocultural community. Um, I message both of you fairly frequently. I haven't met either of you in person yet, <laughs> so you know. And I'm looking forward to the day that happens. It would, but I just think having some avenues for that uh, would be pretty cool. Um, but I don't know. Maybe it'll happen in the future. We shall see. But I do think about that quite a bit because in, in my in my world, being a scientist, you know, this is a big year for all of us because we're having the meetings again. And I I was and I'm looking forward to having meetings again and seeing people that I haven't seen since 2019, some of them. Um, But I, I, you know, I have that in in crayfish land, but in herpetoculture land, it's just still valley forth. And and if you're going to meet somebody and you're meeting them at like Tinley, Jesus Christ, (laughs) Tinley is an interesting world. That's it. That is like. An amazing place for the part of my brain that does herpetoculture. And then the introvert in me is dying, like just dead before I walk through the door. There are thousands and thousands of people there. So it's not exactly, it's if just you don't kind have of an to, awkward But you don't situation. have to talk to them. You don't have that, to talk. That is true. But like when you do try to talk to them, there's like people just zipping around you and everything. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, it's nuts. But, um, and I was completely overwhelmed. I've never been to a show like Tinley before. And I, and, and, uh, I met um, so many people that listen to this are going to know Eric Westmoreland, um, and he's a guy that I talked to on the interweb. And I had to apologize to him when I like first met after I'd first met him because I was still in that like first hour of Tinley Hayes of like this is real, like this is actually what herpetoculture can be. That I sounded like a blithering idiot when I was talking to him, and I, I like circled back and was like, "My feet have hit the ground again." Hi, my name is Zach. Uh, <laughs> it was. It was kind of ridiculous, but anyway, moving back to uh, what we were talking—the <laughs> actual meat and potatoes of the podcast. Um, I've got a two-part question for you, uh, Chris. So, first question is, and, and most people that know you know the answer to this, but there's definitely going to be people listening who who don't. Um, what does your collection look like now, as far as taxa and your style of keeping? And then, after you answer this, I'm going to follow it up with a question that you're probably going to allude to. All right. Um, there is. I'll leave out one little fun stuff. The bulk of my collection is Nerodia and Pantherophus, and most of it in the Nerodia is Fasciata and Clarkite Compressicata. I do have a couple of babies of Rombifer at the moment. I have one project of Erythrogaster, and I think that's it in Nerodia. It's just uh, a handful of years ago, I really wanted to, I just really enjoyed Fasciata subspecies, uh, particularly the Fasciata, 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 Pictoventris. Confluence, I have a love-hate relationship with. Uh, they're just so beautiful, and they were from the other end of the range where I grew up, and so, uh, but they're not most are not as tractable as the more easterly locales of bandits. Mm-hmm. So though I will say my chambers, County Texas, are much better than the others. 
But um, and then in Pantherophis, it's a lot of obsolete locales, a lot, and um, I still have a good good few uh, Gutatas complex. Where I really should go back and just say Gutata complex, depending on how you want to care to break all that back up. Um, where I still have a, a few red rat locales and Sluinsky. I don't think I have. No, I don't have any more Emery in my personal collection. My my buddy that I work closely with with a lot of my rat projects still has um, some of the Emerys that I've had on and off. I just they they don't like my room as much, so mm-hmm. I left most of the more westerly species of rats with him, and I just will kind of have them short term to raise them up here and there, and be sure that he's got backups on hand and stuff like that to in case something happens, that kind of thing. Um, and do have two lamp propeltus locales at the moment. Um, I thin back a lot of those too, just because my my Nerodia and, and Rat collection just keeps morphing into more than <laughs> than uh, than my than my obsession with with Lampropelis. I love them. I really love my Florida Kings. I just like my Bandits and my Yellow Rats more, I guess, than anything else. And then I've just got a few other side projects that I've added on over the last few years of uh, uh, boys. Um, Indian Sambo has been working with those for mm-hmm. five or more years now. And uh, uh, I just added, took me three years of chewing on it and being willing to come off the expense, but I added two pairs of the Black Russian Samboas, which uh, I'm really excited about, really enjoying those things. Really cool. Slow growing little things, but man, they're cool. And, uh, else is there um i i paid back to an old genus that i had worked with and bred many years ago that i ended up kind of serendipitously ending up with uh from somebody uh in in trade and i got some some white lip pythons and the alberts um i worked with them bred them 20 or so years ago and uh when they came available man i'd really like to work with those again and i made it happen so i got a couple of those and uh just added um, a genus that I had worked with and bred, uh, just not this species, and I just added some Corallus Russian Burgeri, and I'm really excited about those. It's, I have not had them long, and still really get acclimated at the moment, but uh, everything's looking positive on the whole with those. But those are just kind of play things, just to yep. give me something different to play with outside of my my my, my rats and my waters. So. You, you alluded to what the main topic of tonight is going to be, um, now that we're kind of getting into the, the middle and the sec- second half of the episode, which is locality keeping. So people that know you definitely know that you are a locality guy. So uh, you, know, you, you don't just say fasciata or pictoventris. It's pictoventris from Lake County and this retention pond behind Walmart Seven point one miles away from like so and so, and your knowledge of that, for the record, I've always been impressed by, um, because I I thought that I had that kind of brain, and my brain is mush compared to you when it comes to like 
the exact locality. And and I, I wanted I thought it would be great to have a locality episode because this is definitely a part of Colubrid keeping, a little subset of the of um Colubrid keepers are locality keepers. Yeah. Uh, so for you, before we get into like questions that are coming up like what constitutes a lo- locality and how is this different than morph keeping because you're like you know, you're taking a, a phenotype that's specific to a place, blah blah blah. But before we get into kind of that yeah. meat and potatoes, why do you like to keep locality? Because it there's obviously an itch there that needs scratched with you. So, sure, sure. So what is it about me, locality just, keeping? Uh, for me, it's just uh, being a guy that grew up and still routinely gets into the field. For me. I'm just working with representatives of, of of some favorite animals from across the range. Like I can mm-hmm. I can I can work with multiple yellow rat snakes from across the range, from the top to the bottom of the range, and they vary drastically from North Carolina to the Keys. And for me, that's fascinating. I think it's cool. I think it's it's amazing to see the differences and and I mean, there's a huge temperament difference between yellow rats that I keep from central Florida and the ones that I keep from southern tip of Florida keys. I mean, they, they act different. Uh, they're, 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 they're. For me, it's just appreciation for the, the natural variability of these animals more than anything. I, I'd like to go and hunt and find and see and photograph and these guys in the field and always have since I was a kid. And so I like to just work with animals from these different areas. And, 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 and I know there's other people out there that like that as well. And so establishing captive gene pools of animals from specific parts of the range is just, just more than anything, just something that interests me. It doesn't interest everybody, but it interests me. And I always found over the years that a lot of people, and by no means everybody, but a lot of people didn't really care so much, at least in herpetoculture about that. They cared just, they cared about aesthetics more than anything else, which is great and fine. That's, you know, to each their own, you know, they just look at something and go like, Oh, I like the color of that, of that snake. Cause it's, it's bright, but the one over here, it's not as bright. So I don't like that one, but I, I can find the appreciation for these different phenotypic variations of an animal across the range and how that relates to the habitat change across the range. And to me, it's just fascinating. And so that's it more than anything else. Just, you know, I like to be able to go out and see something and know that, you know, if, if I'm going to work with some animals from a particular area, they, they represent that area. Now, they may be similar three counties over, four counties the other way, but they seem to vary. You know, most of these animals vary as, as the habitat changes every so many miles and on the other side of rivers. And, you know, it's more of a sand hills here. It's more of a swamp area here. All those things greatly affect how these animals survive in the wild and what they need to look like, how they need to act. And I just like to have my collection when I'm working with reflect that. And it's really nothing more than that. It's not a, my animals are better than yours or anything like that. I mean, I work with morphs, but a lot of historically, a lot of morphs 
are very untraced. They, there's just a mix of animals. There's questionable backgrounds on the animals. <laughs> and I've kind of fallen into a couple of very locality-specific lines of morphs from animals I've collected or have hatched out or my, my, my close friend uh, collected over the years. And I just kind of feel like it's an opportunity to bring something uh, to, to the to the hobby, to the culture, to other people that are interested. And so I'm just trying to see some of these projects through to bring them, bring them into the hands of other people that find it interesting too. If they don't want to keep it pure, that's their choice. I don't care, you know. But for me, what I do, I like to to, to work with the animals in a pure pure capacity from a particular area and and bring it bring new blood in over the years as 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 is possible. Very very. Very cool. So, Chris, just to touch on that just a little bit, <clears throat> I think one of the cool parts about locality that really I haven't heard many people talk about this, but I, I do think that for older keepers, I think is a, a big sentiment in terms of locality is most of us that are older experienced keepers were driven by natural history books and at that point in time, we didn't have a lot of the information that we have today in terms of ease of access. And a lot of us had to dive deeper into looking up um, books or articles related to the areas where those animals were found, diving into different aspects of temperature, seasonality, because some of that wasn't presented in some of the books. And I think that's that's a big factor, I think, that really drives locality and information or the interest in locality because you're almost creating a picture for yourself of where those animals came from and it kind of presents it in a different fashion or story if you will um because then you're immersed in where that animal is actually found and what you're actually coming from off of that that to me is like the coolest part about locality in terms of like immersing yourself in where that animal is found learning about Temperature, barometric pressure, seasonality changes, different populations of um, prey availability that might come in seasonality, where if we're just looking at, you know, a, a species in general, we're getting just, boom, here you go. This is all we know about it. We're like locality, like you mentioned, you know, different um, patterns, colors, things of that nature. I mean, we could look at Texas rat snakes, right? I mean, across their range or black rats across their range um, and look at some of the different variability amongst them. But I mean, one of my favorites is the Japanese forest rat snakes looking in Japan and looking how much variability they it, it's across and how different populations of where they're found and those habitats change drastically in terms of temperature even. I think that's that's really the cool part with locality for me. I, I agree with you 100%. For me, a lot of the projects that I work with are ones that either I collected my founding stock or go back to those areas with some occasionalness, depending on where they are, um, or the stock came from a close friend. I know where they came from. I know the stories behind where they came from. In fact, it, you may have seen the, the the little article I wrote that that Justin had posted um, on his website um, about how the South Mountains, North Carolina, red rat snake came into culture. I basically wrote an article about 
the work Michael Kuhn had done and how many years it took in the face of this story of bringing that locality of red rat snake into culture. Because I thought it was, it's a really cool looking red rat snake in an isolated population around a, an isolated mountain. And they look different than ones down in the low country. And it's a cool story. And I think he worked really hard for many years. And I think, you know, with a couple of us now breeding those, that that, that, that was something that could easily get lost in history. And some of that backstory makes them more interesting as well as helps preserve the, the, the richness of, of, of some of these different, different locales of stuff, the same sort of thing. And a lot of folks that have gotten animals from me over the years, I, I've, the ones that have an interest, I've, I've told them about some of the some of the backstories of how you know some of the animals I've gotten and where they where they came from and that sort of thing. And a lot of them are just like, wow, that's really cool to know all that, you know. And that's that's the cool thing to me about it is is just knowing the history behind some of these some of these animals and, and how they came into culture and and where why they're important. There's certain animals that I work with that are extremely important to me because they're from the town I grew up in, stuff like that, and other ones are from towns that friends grew up in that, you know, that I've gotten, gotten animals from. So there's a lot of cool stuff like that about them that, you know, there's a connection to them. And that's what keeps me interested in them, you know, more than anything. Yeah, that's definitely what I like about it as well. And being a natural history nerd, uh, seeing the variation across an animal's population and then, not just see, not just holding the animal in your hand and seeing it, but then taking it one step further and thinking about why do you look the way that you look, and then going to where the habitat is, and then actually seeing how the habitat is different for this population here, and that might explain why a golf hammock rat snake has that crazy pattern, and there are populations of golf hammocks where less than. Five miles away, ten miles away, you've got your classic central, sorry, north central Florida yellow rats living. If you've been in that part of the panhandle of Florida, you know that they're like it's a completely different habitat than yep. um, central Florida where the Gulf <laughs> right. Hammocks live. The, the, now, the area down there in Gulf Hammock, if you're in the if you're in the lower part of the habitat, it's it's a different world down there, man. I mean, those mm-hmm. are some those are some old old wet woods down there that just are nothing like the sand hills a handful of miles away that get more sun and are dry and that sort of thing and that all those those little differences from a few miles one way or another makes a difference you know as far as how an animal looks and acts to be able to survive and for me that's fascinating like when i'm in the field yeah i may have an interest in cruising a snake or whatever but i'm spending probably more time appreciating everything that's around me. I mean, I'm constantly taking pictures of, of landscape and, and spiders and whatever happens to be around and flowers and don't get me into carnivorous plant habitat because <laughs> herpin's done, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to sit there and take pictures of pitcher plants all day long. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And the hard part, though... <clears throat> And I'm starting to see this even more now with locality, though, and this kind of brings into an earlier conversation we just had in terms of shows and selling animals, right, is now you're seeing a lot of um, locality being 
presented or advertised where 10 plus years ago, these animals were bred and being sold with no locality. And now all of a sudden locality appears on their label, right? Just yeah. in terms of monetary value. Um, it, it's very interesting. And I think, you know, those that listen to this, I hope really do get some appreciation for this because, and I'll use mandarins as an example, because I get asked all the time. So this is my mandarin. What locality is it? <laughs> and you go back and you have to explain, well, this is what locality means. This is why locality is important. This is what I think about locality. But most people are just interested in the monetary value of that and not actually interested in learning about the habitat, the natural right. range, why things occur, why it's important to learn about natural history of the animal, because it may have um, future implication for breeding cycles, aspects like that, that, you know, I, I think that's, you know, even if we were talking about um, herb societies and how we present things in that matter, I think that's the value. That's like really where we want, you know, our future emphasis in our society to really kind of grow with, because that's going to help and lead for people understanding these animals better. And maybe I'm preaching. No, I, I agree. <laughs> I agree with you hundred percent. I mean, I get people that, that, you know, I get that asked all the time. Hey, this is my picture of my, whatever, my rat snake, my whatever. And what locality is it? I'm like, that's not, that's not how it works. It doesn't work that way. Like if somebody has, you know, some babies of something and I can look at it, and go, and I can know specifically what it is. Like Zach posted a year or so ago, two years ago now, whatever it's been, a litter clutch of baby Slinsky rats. I looked at that and I was like, "Those are mine." <laughs> and that yeah, those, those are mine. Like where where <laughs> where are those from? Those those are mine. <laughs> and it tracked back. He got some animals from somebody had got some from one of the first clutches or two that I had sold. And then he bred them, and once I he said who we got them, I was like, oh yeah, those are those those are mine. So you know, it's but it's a matter of like I could look at those animals and I could tell what part of the range they were from. And there's next to nobody else. I'm not saying there isn't anybody else. Just publicly posting and that you can track down easily. Not other people working with Louisiana locale Solinsky. Most of what's in the, in the hobby is Texas uh, size stuff. And those guys look different than the Louisiana. Um, at least in my eye, they look different. So, um, you know, I was easy, very quickly able to go like, where are those from? Because if they're not mine, I want some. You know, it, it, it's it's just that much because I could tell that they were they were most likely Louisiana animals, and you know, if they were they were close enough locality, I'd want some for for fresh stock. And they just happen to be mine. So. Yep. So along these lines, then, another question that I get, um, and I know you guys get it, uh, is uh, geographically, what constitutes a locality? Because within the difference, so we've got like colubrid keeping, which is a subkeeping of snake keeping. But then, of course, there's the different communities within colubrid keeping. And, and I don't think anybody's going to resist the statement that the Alterna people probably taken locality keeping to a whole new extreme where there's literally cuts that are within two to 400 meters of each other. And, and those are kind of identified as unique entities. Meanwhile, if you come over to the world that I dwell in with the um, like Florida king snakes, it, there's 
Hernando County or Pinellas County. Uh, <laughs> so in that regard, we're we're you know expanding our geographic scope quite a bit. So I know there isn't a right answer. This is a very open ended. Yeah, question. there there isn't a, there isn't a right answer ultimately. But, just like but you, for as someone like to, you, what would that be? <laughs> some of it is is a habitat thing. You know, is is there is there an area where a particular habitat is isolated off a little bit, like the South Mountains in North Carolina. It, it covers it covers a couple of different counties, but the habitat is only ideal within a sh- distance right around that particular mountain. And you get out farther, and it's not ideal, and they don't exist until you get yeah either down. I think mostly down to the Sandhills, you know, down towards Charlotte, the other side of Charlotte, or whatever, or go up a little bit farther. There's some in another mountain range. Um, a little bit, a little bit farther, farther north up, um, and and some of it is, you know, there, there's areas like the Appalachian lowlands. It, it it covers a couple of counties there, but that habitat is really unique. That's why there's there's Goins kings and there's brown chin racers, and and for me, the gray rat snakes, although they 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 have a lot of similarities across the panhandle, to me there's there's a little bit of a look on most of the animals. Uh, particularly on the on the on the western side of the lowlands, closer to the river, that that that, that have a that have a a, a similar uh, you know a phenotype, a look to them that I don't see if I go over the other side, you know, a county away one way, or go go west of the river and start going over that way. They're they're, they're similar, but there's a big difference between like my Apalachicola grays and my Santa Rosa County grays that are. Found over off the Yellow River, on you know a couple counties away. Like those are drastically different animals, very different looking animals. Habitats different from where they're coming to as well. And so, some of it's just a matter of somebody collected a handful of animals from a particular area, and if nobody else is working with any otherwise, it's you know that's the locale. You know, like some of my banded water snakes, I work with them from you know a particular a particular lake or particular. County area or something, you know. It's well, nobody else is working with any, and you know, the, the, my Lake Jessup banded waters. Well, that's along the St. Johns River, but it's actually one of the only lakes in the St. Johns River feed that isn't a that isn't a flow through lake. It's actually a flow into the river lake, and it feeds. It's basically a low swampy lake, and so they might be a little bit different right there than they are. Over at Harney, or you know, even farther up in Lake Monroe, or up at Lake George, or something like that. You know, they, they technically connect into the, the, the St. Johns, but there's a particular spot that I've gone back to and I've collected stock at the same little spot that my dad and I used to fish as a kid at. That was a couple, just a couple miles away from our house, and I go back to that same spot when I have a chance and go home, and I look to see if I can find one, and if it's something that. You know, we'll, we'll we'll suit, and I need something. I need a new male, or I need something I want to bring into the into the bloodline. I'll, I'll grab another one to bring in uh, to, to to bring into the gene pool, and uh, cross my fingers that it wants to eat and and get established well. Um, and now a lot of that's for me. I mean, you talked about the the, the, the kings. Kings are they're pretty bad. I mean, you talked about like <laughs> Pinellas, Pasco, Fernando, Citrus. You know, they vary up along that way. God, you're talking about, you know, localities for the Pinellas and the Pasco and Fernando. Like, they're pretty close to each other, but it's just a matter of maybe the spots 
where those animals are able to be found in still are separated because of because of us, because of what we've developed, what we've taken away habitat-wise. And so these particular areas, although they may not be revealing specifically where they're found, they're 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 just being presented as this county, that county, that county, for the sake of just uh, having the ability to, to divide them up. You know, they, uh, a lot of times it's our our, our municipality lines that, that that make up some of these localities quite frequently. Florida Kings being definitely one in that case. And, so, you know, I think that's it more than anything. It's just where somebody starts starts a population from and keeps the stock to that area and sometimes it's a county sometimes it's a habitat it's you know it's a, a subjective sort of naming I guess would be kind of a way to label that yeah. so Chris yeah. you know off of that though <clears throat> how is that any different than or how is it different from morph keeping in terms of breeding in terms of selectivity of an animal inside of your collection? Nothing on the grand scheme of things. I mean, other than that, the animals that I'm working with represent a particular area and population. Ultimately, I'm selecting what gets bred. I'm selecting what gets kept. I'm selecting what gets paired. It's there's, there's a definitely huge, you know, human selection, you know, component to the whole thing. No different than somebody taking their, their, their annery red rat, and bringing it to their email red rat and working their way towards snows or making ghosts or making whatever combo these days that, that exists to the 10th degree. There, there ultimately it isn't once it comes into captivity. Um, it, it is entirely in our hands and we're, we're, we're playing we're playing the card deck ourselves. So for me, it's more of just the connectivity of what those animals look like in their range. And that's all it is for me. I mean, I yeah. see a huge difference in banded water snakes around the state of Florida. There's certain phenotypes that you only see in certain areas, you know, and I don't see certain colors or certain ways the pattern exists in other areas. You know, it's, there's definitely a, a very noticeable difference, you know, across the range. And for me, that's the interesting thing about it. You know, if somebody else wants to breed them from a different area, that's fine and dandy. I don't care. Work with water snakes. I encourage it. So, Chris, that brings up a, a good question, though. <clears throat> so if you are keeping a locality and breeding locality, are there certain guidelines that you need to follow in terms of what you represent as a true locality? There's certainly nothing clad in stone on that, that's for sure. Um, but for me, it's just, you know, one, honestly representing what you're working with, and two, doing your best to try to keep some diverse bloodlines into the situation. You know, sometimes it's not always possible to go back and get your hands on animals from a particular area for any plethora of reasons. Just habitat doesn't exist, animals aren't found there anymore, you just can't get there you can't find anybody to help you get those animals you know but you know for the ones that i i can in in my case i try to get new blood from certain areas every so many years just to try to keep the gene pool diversified 
Um, you know, there's a lot to be said for line breeding, and I don't argue with that because it does help you show what is in your line and what isn't in your line. A lot of locality projects out there are some of the are, are popping up lots of cool new morphs. Daniel Parker has had a lot of cool morphs pop out of his Kingsnake projects because he's working with a small gene pool from a small area, and that gene's hiding around out there and increases his opportunity to have these these, these morphs show themselves by doing some line breeding as opposed to just constantly bringing in new stock all the time and never having that represent itself. So um, th- th- there's nothing clad in stone. It's more than anything is just knowing where the animals come from and, and, and being proud and representing those animals, I guess is what it is to me, you know? And as, as Zach had mentioned earlier, like I try to label a lot of mine when I take pictures of them and I post them and that sort of thing is like, these aren't just banded waters that I have. These are banded waters from here or banded waters from there or yellow rats from here, whatever the case may be just because I find it worthy to show that this animal looks like this because it's from this particular area. I don't know. I'm sure you could get a couple of different answers from different people. Well, I think there's one one difference between the locality locality keeping and some morph keeping. And and, and you kind of hit it on already, which is if you have a locality in theory and, and the population sustainable to the point that you can go collect new stock or whatever you you know. You can add heterogeneity into a locality project, but you can't necessarily add genetic diversity to a morph project. Like if 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 you want to get a lavender false water cobra, you have to breed you have to get lavender genes in there. And right now all of the lavender genes that exist came from two snakes in Italy. Uh, and and that's it. You can do some outcrossing and create hats and you know, but when you inevitably get down to those gene pairs coming together to make a lavender, there's still a tremendous amount of um homozygosity that there's like next to no genetic diversity, even though you're, you're out crossing with the hets, but at the same time, that's not really gaining that much. If you have that phenotype popping up of a lavender. And I think with the locality stuff, you can kind of get that look, uh, like the, um, uh, Spartan South Carolina black rat snakes that you right. produce that are yeah. like black. Mm-hmm. And I've been in that part of the world. I've caught black rat snakes there. Not all of them are as black as yours, but one out of two, <laughs> like that, that yeah, is definitely. There's, there's a whole stretch there in those diversity, yeah, in those foothills from mm-hmm. like up through Hickory and down yep. towards Greenville. There's a whole whole swath area there where those foothills animals are really nice. And oddly enough, like sometimes during time, certain times of the year, my animals show pattern, and other times of the year they're glossy black with nothing. It's it's weird. How certain times of the year, like, why well, we just threw them in the fridge last weekend. And I could see pattern on two of the three, very obviously. Like, it was obvious that they had pattern. And then other times of the year, like, unless, unless I'm fed up heavy and I'm seeing the stretch between the scales, like, I don't see anything. They're just jet black. And uh, a lot of that bear with the barking. My wife's moving girls into the house. <laughs> um, 
you know, but that area in general. And that's why I held off for years. I always wanted to get some nice black rats, but I just didn't have uh, a source or a way or know exactly where get my hands on some. And through through a good friend, Michael Kuhn, and a friend of his who's now a good friend of mine, uh, I was able to get my hands on some fresh stock from, from his area and Aaron Spartanburg from, from Jason. And, uh, you know, and they're awesome. And he's working with some, and we've swapped blood back to get some, you know, bring each get some new genes in. And he works with some morphs as well and bring his into some – he's got some Lucy's at least. I can't remember what else he's got. But, you know, uh, to me, I just – Big a nice jet black black rats, beautiful. I think it's you know yeah. cool. I get to work with a jet black back black rat snake and a bright yellow striped yellow rat snake and a nice cool light silvery yellow uh, gray rat snake. You know all those sort of things. I, it's what I like to see. I can just go you know have some animals from three or four counties off and bounce along the range and they all look different. I think that's cool. Very very cool. So um, another question. And, and we've already kind of we, we've danced around it. We just haven't hit it straight head on. Uh, purity in the locality keeping. Um, uh, yeah, there's there's a very straightforward look to this, but both of you have alluded to. People oftentimes say, "Oh, I have this a Vietnam locality mandarin rat snake," and then you ask them, "Well, tell me a little bit about the parents." Well, the guy said it was a Vietnam mandarin rat snake, yeah. and then if you know what that phenotype looks like. And you're looking right. at the rat snake. You're like, that's not a Vietnam <laughs> locality yeah. uh, Mandarin rat snake. So there's definitely an ethic ethical question behind this. But if if you don't know the the history of your animal and someone's selling it to you as a locality, is can we say that's a locality? Can we not say that? Like, uh, how does that whole thing work in in your eyes? For, for me, if you can't trace it back to wild-caught animals, you know where they came from, you, you kind of can't claim it. You know, if like you get an animal from me and you say it's from, you know, and you tell somebody else it's from this, but I got it from, they got the animal from me, there's still, there's still, there's still a trace that you can get back and get that information, even if that person may not have kept up with, you know, the, the label and the deli cup of what I put on their, <laughs> on their container. And what our conversations may have been, you know, there's still a trace that you can find out. If you can't trace it and find out, you just have Animal X. It's not locality. Like I, on a whim a couple years ago, picked up a pair of young Annery Devil's Garden Red Rats. I'd been wanting some, but I wanted locality ones. And I came across a table at Daytona, and I don't buy stuff. Shows. They come the only show I go to, and I, we just go to go and visit with whoever I happen to know that's there. And I grilled this guy. I grilled this guy with more questions to see if he could answer my questions to prove that they were from there. And he answered the questions correctly, and I felt good about buying them off because I could trace back that his pairs, you know, that his pair, his pair that he's breeding. You know, we're out of a wild caught female that laid eggs. So he had F1s and these are these ones that he had here were, 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 you know, F2s. And he, he answered the questions clearly and could answer them properly because I just looked at his, you know, his, his deli cup lids and they were like devil's garden red rat, devil's garden red. And they were all Henry's. 
And so I just started asking questions, and he answered the questions correctly to satisfy myself that they were true and legit. I didn't ask him for a road. A lot of people, you know, aren't going to tell you that if they don't know you. Those sort of things give you specifics about about where a lot of people still to this day are extremely cagey about where they go herp and that sort of thing. But fine. I just haven't spent enough time down there. It's been down there. I just haven't spent enough time road cruising that right time of year to get any for myself. And so I took a whim and I got him, but the guy answered the questions to me right. I could trace him back to the wild caught animal. And I, that was enough for me. I felt good about it. So, and that's kind of where I go with that sort of a thing. You know, I don't consider any of my, my boys to be anything of a locality, anything other than that they're from where they're supposed to be in the part of the world they're from. Cause mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know Larry the collector in New Guinea that <laughs> collected my white lips. You know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, they're, they're farmed babies, which doesn't mean anything. You know, but whatever, you know, but, you know, when it comes to some of these animals that live within the range and the distance of where we live, you can track down information, you know, to a pretty close level and if not very specific level of where the animals come from. And for me, I try to get my animals either myself or from somebody I trust that got them themselves in most cases. Those are one of the few that I just I wanted some and. The guy answered the questions without making it up, so I could tell he wasn't labeling them to label them. He was able to answer, you know, answer my inquiries enough to prove to me that he wasn't just labeling them for what as that to sell them as that. So, no, very cool, very very cool. Uh, yeah, I think Chris, it it really is a hard. Um, it's a hard point, right? Um, and I'm sure you get contacts because I get contacts from the fact that maybe you have sold some animals and then they breed them and then they sell the babies and then they come back and they want information from you. And then you go back and you're like, I never sold that person, those animals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. and, and it's not hard to trace back because Typically, you know, we're using um, reptile shipping companies and things of that nature through FedEx. Yep. And it's very easy to go back in your records and look at where yep. you shipped animals. To. I, can, I can I go in, I go into my, my to my chats. I save yeah. my chat yeah. just to signify whether or not I want to deal with that person or if I did deal with that person and what our convos are like and what I sold them and all that sort of stuff. It's all there. It only takes me a few minutes to go back and search if I don't remember off the top of my head. I used to, yeah. years ago, I used to write down some of these localities on who ended up with them, and that just got to be too much of a hassle. It just didn't like it. it got to be just annoying. So nope. I, just, I just keep my history. Let technology work for you. Right. I just, I, I, have, I have my history and my convos with people, and that tells me what, what I've done with people. If I don't remember, you know, if I haven't made a relationship with that person, you know, there's a lot of people that, I've, that I keep up with. You know, because they have an interest in the same things I have an interest in. And so we, you know, we talk and, and chat. And as soon as, like with the Swinsky rat, as soon as, as soon as Zach told me who he got his snakes from, I was like, oh, yeah. I knew she had some others, but I know those were mine. Just because. Because I remember her getting some from me, and I remembered what else she got from me, too. So, and, you know, it was, it was easy to 
Tinnodos were definitely mine based on who he said he got them from. Yeah, it's 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 kind of interesting when you when you're going to buy a locality animal and you know who has who collected the founding stock, mm-hmm. and somebody else is selling animals claiming they're their stock. Like, what goes through your brain trying to make your decision as to whether you're going to pull the trigger? So I, I, I def, I've, do, I've dove off the deep end with the Florida Kings in particular. <laughs> I know all the localities now. I think that I will slowly inherit Chris's collection of Florida King snakes over time. <laughs> you probably I have a third of them right now. Yeah, you do, <laughs> so, and and you're yeah. and you're and, and and you're on the verge of of getting, getting one rest. more here in in the in the foreseeable yes. future, probably. But um, and it's just, I, I, it, it goes back. To, I love the damn things. It's just I've only got so yeah. much space, and I only have so much time. And I got gotcha. you. I like my rat snakes more, and there's a few projects mm-hmm. that I'm working on right now that just it, they need more space more than I want to have. If I just have yeah. one Florida king snake around, and ideally just a pair, so I can breed them when I feel like it once in a while, I, I'm I'm satisfied. To me, that's just like a a, a back home snake I need to have around, yeah. and I don't need to have a bunch of them, you know. And uh, more than anything, like people talk about Nerodia having bad temperament. Like, oh man. I, I I like you keep them both, and I can flat out tell you I would rather get musked two hundred times, a thousand times out of a thousand by a Nerodia than a freaking Getula King. It just I'm stinks. Just, yeah, it's it stays not even that. with you. It's, it's the biting, man. The <laughs> yeah, and the, yes, the slow bite. So, so strong. It's yes. all they want to do is eat. And like like tongs, you uh, shoes. Yeah, they don't care. Socks. Like, right. <laughs> like, <laughs> they don't care. But I love that for some reason. Uh, like it's, it makes them easy and great. Me. I mean, it does. Yes. It, it makes them easy and great. But for me, like as long as I have a couple around to enjoy the phenotype, then I can go, mm, I like that snake. Those are cool. I like having it around. The head's really cool. And I'm usually pretty satisfied. Yeah. You know, that's, it's, you know, will I get more outside of, you know, these maybe one day if I have more room, but I have some of these yeah. projects right now that are, I, I need to put, a few more years of having a few too many of them around to make sure that I establish some of these these new morph projects, locality morph projects, and then some of the other ones like my my my, my Puro Kitty Hunt Club stock that held back a lot and they're phenomenal. And I want to make sure I've got, you know, room for them when sure. they get stuff like that. So, you know, it's it's But I just so I was trying to get all the localities that people keep. I have the Hubs book, which I love to death. <laughs> and I know that there's some additions to since then. And, and one of the localities I was really trying to locate were Pasco County. Because uh-huh. I have Pinellas, I have Hernando. Um, and there was a pair on Morph Market, and they were an outrageous price. No, just, just don't. Look, don't, don't. We, we'll get, we'll but, get you some Pascos. Don't worry about well, it. Well, I was able to email the guy. And then I didn't buy from him. And then I reached out to Daniel Parker, and Daniel Parker was like, "Yeah, those are mine." I was like, "Okay." Yeah. And, and that's I, and that's and that's the key when you're talking about that's that stuff. That's what I did. If Daniel can verify it, then you're good. Mm-hmm. Yes, because that's ninety percent of the Florida cow, Florida King locales are are his bread and butter. Like they wouldn't yeah. be in the lobby if it wasn't for him. The, 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 so the that's hours, what I had to do to to pull the trigger on him. Until yeah, then, the hours and the dedication into those that he's done 
to make sure that a lot of these are are in the hobby, and it's it, it can't be compared to anybody else. Like kudos to Daniel for all the work he's done, and now he's brought back. He's managed to to resurrect Swanee Kings. He has found old timers that had some stock, and when I walked by his table at Daytona, I did everything in my power to not buy <laughs> a handful of Swanee Kings because I had some back in the early nineties and. He had some on his table, and I really just wanted to give him a couple thousand dollars and buy all of them. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. There's pending legislation in my state that I'm told is not going to really happen, but I just tried not to pull. I, I made a point not to pull trigger on more layups until this thing looming over us here in this state goes away. So, but they do exist, and that's really awesome that Daniel's done that. That's yeah. all that matters. So. You also mentioned about, and, and I definitely have gotten back into this, especially in the past year, the whole field herping tie-in to locality keeping. So when, when in some circles when you talk about herping, a lot of times in, in kind of the, the modern, I don't know, 2022 version of herping, a lot of people are like, you, you find the animal, you take a picture, you put the animal back. And when you talk about how you're collecting, I think that, you know, in in herpetoculture circles, collecting means one thing. Outside of herpetocultural circles, I've you know it means another. I'm a scientist, and I can flat out tell you, and I'm not trashing. I know there's other biologists that listen to this, but there's definitely you know, when you collect in science land, you're putting that animal in a jar. Like <laughs> it, it goes to the bed of the pickup truck. You get out your chlorotone, inject its heart, and then nail it with some formalin, and it's going to the museum. And from a biological perspective, when you take that animal out of the wild, you have effectively done the same thing. But it's a different because you're taking the animal out, you're creating this kind of captive population, and then people come to Chris to get that captive population instead of hopping in the car necessarily and driving down and, and collecting. So like when when and I also know that you are incredibly ethical when it comes to doing this. So could you kind of discuss when you are going out to, to collect a locale or to get genetic, like what exactly that entails? I mean, most of the time it's just, you know, collecting a couple animals just for myself. Like, you know, yeah. I, I just, I, I want a few animals to, to start a gene pool. And if it's an area I know I can go back to in the future, because it's a place I like to go or, you know, or I expect to be able to go, you know, as long as I have a pair to start off with, I'm great. I ideally like to start off with 2.2. That's my usual target. Doesn't always happen. In some cases, in some of my Nerodia, my Nerodia locales, like it certainly hasn't happened. <laughs> but you know, it it's you know, it's a big difference than if you're going to go get some banded water snakes from one of the dealers in Florida that you know that are just buying them for a buck a piece from guys that are collecting every single one they see, you know. I, I just I collect for myself. I collect for my own selfish pleasure. Ultimately, what it comes down to, but I try to do something with them. You know, it, it, from my point of view, it may not be appreciable to other people, you know, and or agreeable to other people, and that's fine. You know, we we can all have our own opinions and things. And I've done just what you've done, Matt. I, or Zach, I've collected animals that have, you know are in. In, in Auburn's collection, I've collected crayfish for Rebecca that you know. Nice. 
Yes, she I was do. doing a lot of collecting in the state. She needed she needed some from certain from certain areas, certain species from certain areas. And and there's a couple animals up at University of Alabama that's got my initials on them, you know, because mm-hmm. I was able to to give her a handful from a couple of spots that you know she needed for for her for her collecting quota for that guy that wrote the book that's getting ready to come out and, or came out already and I need to get it or whatever the case may be. It that. came out. It came out. I need to get that. Yes. Um, yes, you do. I, kinda, I, I told Rebecca I didn't want to get the book <laughs> once it came out because her name wasn't on the front. So that was, you know, <laughs> yeah. whatever. It'll probably come in handy somewhere along the way. So I need to get it. But, uh, you know, it's to me, I look at what's done in the university, you know, capacity where they go and get pickled and they get reused and, you know, in, in a studying capacity over, over, over the many years. For, for different reasons, as really no different than collecting, it's it's looked at differently. Yes, like, from different you know perspectives and different different uh, what, you know sides of the fence. But you know, I think if you're just not going out and collecting everyone you see, that you know, and you put a little ethic behind what you're doing, then I, I think it's okay. You know, you know, I, I've bought animals from dealers. I bought animals from from flippers over the years and you know sometimes if you want something or need something from a certain area you you do what you do you know or if you want a certain animal you know a lot of these exotics you know pythons and boas and all these other snakes from other parts of the world like the only way they're coming in they're getting collected in mass in other parts of the world and they're making their way through the channels and eventually making it to you you know it's you know it's it's not ideal, but I can't go to some of these parts of the world and get legal paperwork to go and collect my own animals. So I want to work with something I make do with what I got to do and how that animal made it to our country. You know, it's, but I, I, when I collect, I collect for myself, you know, so that I can work with a few animals. And I've always kind of had a weird, you know, ethic with animals like I've never been good at keeping pets like once I got really into her the culture I've always kind of felt like I have some sort of responsibility to try to do something with it if I'm going to yeah. work with it and keep it like I don't necessarily have to breed it every year but I think I have some responsibility to to, to produce some offspring if I'm going to take the time to keep it and try to get those in the hands of other people in one way or another I don't know it's just it's it's just kind of the way I felt. It's not necessarily like a, a stance I've taken. I just felt like you know if I'm gonna work with something, I should do something productive with it, so to speak. Yeah, hundred percent. No, right on, Chris. Yeah. And and I I do want to say one thing real quick because I kind of came off narky with uh, putting the animals in a jar, and you guys can see like I am reaching to the right on my desk, and here's a crayfish, here's a crayfish, here's a crayfish. <laughs> so like. <laughs> You know, those animals that are collected and put in jars and go to museums, even though they are sacrificed for science, they are essentially a, a library that they go to they go to they go to use so many things are done with those animals. So, right. They they go to use and it's no different than yeah. I haven't done it much in years, but I also haven't locally hurt a lot. I used to give a lot of my information, a lot of my data collection information to Auburn. You know, it, yep. they for their for their digital database, and there's a lot of things that I found in this state that hadn't been recorded in decades, you know. And it's not a fact of 
the matter that like they disappeared. It's the matter nobody was taking the time for 20, 30, 40 years to go and document that they were there. You know, it's nothing. You know, it's really weird on the on the collection side of things because for the longest time, uh, the kind of classic natural history biologist that many people kind of envision that's what biologists are we we were not being trained like my generation of biologists that went to college in the late 90s and then went you know out into the field in the early 2000s that was kind of at the end of the not the end but the molecular boom in biology had absolutely taken effect and it just wasn't worth a university or a school to teach you how to document where animals were uh, and, and how to take an animal and convert it into a specimen. I mean, when I was in the herp lab, one of the things that, that I learned, and then I went on to um, other places and learned they didn't teach it, was just literally like when you find a dead-on-the-road animal that has just been clipped and it's it's dead, you know, but it's still decent, this is what you do to get it back to Marshall to then turn it into a specimen instead of it just being eaten by a raccoon or a hawk. And then right. that animal can be used. Um, yep. But now it's kind of weird because <laughs> we are inundated with locality information. So much so in this digital age that the problem is you can't is, – is figuring out if you can trust it or not. Because apps yeah. like INAT, I can't explain to you this. And I know there's people listening right now that are like, INAT. I have this like love-hate relationship with INAT. I, I think it's fantastic. I naturalist. I, I, and I talked about this with uh, Roy. I think it's fantastic that it's gotten people out into the field. Uh, and I, I know I'm old in my rocking chair and I've climbed uphill both ways today. But I, I think it's weird that like the incentive <laughs> for the INET records is to be able to say like, well, I got 500 moths today. You don't know anything <laughs> about moths. <laughs> But I got 500 of them on my INAT profile, you know, like it. So, yeah, but it is getting a just a, a, a tremendous amount of information. But then that information can be, you know, you there, there's people that are ethical collectors. I would be lying if I didn't say when I went to Kansas on that failed Nasicus trip that I didn't look at INAT to see, like, where the hell did people find Western hognose snakes in Kansas in the past two weeks? Like, that is something we all do. At the same, like I've I've never used it, and most but I don't use it exactly. I, I've never like I think I've gone on there once, and I just, just didn't. But my my buddy that I work closely with on my rat project, he's he's my parents' age. He's retired. He's a rat snake guy. All he's ever done is work with rat snakes for the most part. He's kept a few other things here and there years, obviously. But like he 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 goes back to his 1958 Conant Field Guide and those rat snakes. Or what he likes to work with, what's in that book, and so he didn't yeah. have any any Texases. Like this is a good example recently that we just made a new project come to fruition this year. Is he had had some muddy mixed gene sort of Texas rats for a, a number of years, and we eventually parted with that with that project. And he's like, "All right," took about a year or two, and he finally like, "All right, I, I need to get some more Texas rats." And so he's like, I know what I want. And he wants animals that are colorful, reds and stuff like that. He knew roughly what he wanted to do, but he used INAT to help figure out what part of the range he wanted to get some from. 
So we isolated an area in Louisiana that we wanted to look. And then once we did that, we got on Google Maps and we just literally started looking for places on Google Maps ahead of the trip, looking for roads to cruise, looking for trash piles, looking for whatever we could. And we made a trip down. He drove down, picked me up on the way. We went down there and spent a couple of days and we hit these different areas that we marked that looked like they could be cool spots. We found one road in particular that was a really cool road. And we found a diversity of species on that. But we found Texas rats, Louisiana rats, whatever you care to call it, that were particularly interesting looking. And we ultimately collected four animals. Only one of them just would not thrive. A little one I had picked up this year just just couldn't get it to thrive. But the ones that we initially got a couple of years ago, one, the pair that he has, and I have an adult male, now adult male, he got first clutch from. He held back all those babies, and now we've got a nice gene pool to start with, some really cool-looking Texas rats, and they're all off of the same road. The gene pool's from the same road. In fact, they even had some friends that were herping down there that are just field herp guys, and I was like, hey, go check this road out. You're going to find stuff. You're going to find stuff you like. And they were there just like two weeks after we'd been there. And they were cruised like four or five of them. And they were all older animals from ours. And they were all like cool looking. They all looked the same. It was a cool spot. It's got a nice population of them that we can always go back to unless it gets developed and add new blood down the road if we want to. Right now we've got a decent little gene pool to work with of three animals and uh, and the first clutch. and And we'll be able to get some in the hands maybe starting next year into other people that think that they're cool, hopefully. Cool. But if nothing else, you know, I've got two pairs I'm raising up plus a wild caught male to work back into that. It'll be several years before I'm producing any, but his pair hopefully will produce again next year. And, uh, you know, that's kind of like how, how we approached it. He used iNAP just to figure out geographically where he wanted to go. And then we just got on Google Maps and make a rough idea of roads yeah. and places. We want to and basically we just go down and we just go herping and have fun we you know take pictures and we just we have a great time and hopefully we find what we're looking for you know and if we don't so be it we had a cool time it's so different now than it used to be i I, I remember the uh i was here i was an undergrad at west liberty and google maps didn't exist like we didn't have a like there, the, well, I, I take that back. There was a version of Google Maps that existed. Um, there was a website, and I don't remember what it was called, uh, maybe TopoZone, where you could get all the kind of classic USGS Topo maps. But you had to know the name of, like, the map, and you had to type that in, mm-hmm. and you would get it, and it was, like, yeah. not no satellite imagery at all. You, you couldn't see where there was a dump or anything like that. Uh, but yeah. I distinctly remember the day I walked into Walmart um, and I went to like the magazine section and they had an atlas and you know, no big deal, but it was an atlas for Pennsylvania, not like the 50, 50 States. And I was like, yeah. and I had a trip that I was going to go look for short headed garter snakes for. And I was trying to figure out like, how the hell am I going to plan this trip? And I, grabbed it and my mind was blown and that was the first delorme atlas that i had ever picked up and now my kids laugh at me today at west lib because if i go anywhere if i'm going to like if i have crayfish work or herping in a state my response is i'm buying the delorme so here i am and we're driving down the road and i got my atlas open in the front seat meanwhile all these 20 somethings behind me are like 
in real time on you know, Google Maps, like whipping with your thumbs, like, hey, there's a dump over there. Hey, there's yep. a dump over there. So I am starting to feel a little bit old. But the, the nice thing about the book is you can, like, mark it with a pencil. I mean, yeah. and I know you can drop a pin. Yep. <laughs> but I, 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 still like, have, I still have know, my Florida and Alabama in my car. My, my yeah. They're, they're in there. I haven't mm-hmm. – they're up underneath the passenger seat. I haven't broken them out because, like you just said, I got pins all over my Google Maps. Yes. Because that's so. my – that's I, I've learned to you know to utilize the technology in that capacity. It makes it easy to for me too. Like if I get an animal from somebody, if I get a, a group of babies from somebody, I can go okay, where did they come from? And I can put a dot. I've never been there, but I got a dot at the roadie group. They got cruised on, or where the parents were. Bad. I've got all the I've got the information on those, you know, and that's important to me. So if I ever want to get some more, I know where that I either myself need to go look or somebody's going to be in that area and can look for me. I, I know where, I know where they're at. So uh, all that's, you know, no, I, I got to experience to your pins last year when we were in Cluiston and I sent yeah. you that message. Yeah. So is there anywhere around here? And then all of a sudden, like, bam, 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 <laughs> all yeah. these places Chris had been. It turns yeah. out the road we actually got to Florida King on was the road that you had been to. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, but no, that's what's fun about this. I I, I I definitely like the aspect of it. It just adds layers to the cake when you do locality keeping, especially if it's animals that are here in the states where you can get to them. Uh, right. Where where you can basically be like, you know, this is a Bell Glade, Florida King, or Cane Fields, Florida King. I've now been to Bell Glade. I saw a dead on the road. Um, Florida King in Bell Glade, which was ironic. Mm-hmm. We drove all over those damn cane fields, found one. We're driving by Subway in the middle of town, and there's a beautiful, unfortunately dead, four foot king snake on the side of the road. Uh, but I, you know, got out, took pictures of it, and the pattern of that animal is identical to the Bell Glade animal that I had received. Um, and that's a dirt cheap king snake. I think I paid eighty dollars for that thing. But at the same time. That's probably my favorite because that's the only one so far where I've actually been able to get to the field. I know what the cane fields look like. Um, I've seen the cotton rats. I've seen, like, the whole kit and caboodle, and then I come home, and I get to see that that animal. So I think that's right. the, you know, I yeah, just for me, like the it, part of locality where, where you've yeah. just got this added nerddom yeah. to it. And that's exactly <laughs> what it is for me. A lot of the folks that have gotten um, – some of the Deckard's rats from me. Mm-hmm. I've given them the story that how the original parents and stock were acquired uh, by my friend down there in the Keys. And they're just fascinated. Like, he still keeps, he has his rats in like vision display cages and he keeps little finch breeder bird nests in hanging in his in his Deckard's rat cage because two of the four original animals that he got he got through a finch breeder as a pest animal from really Key Largo. He he used to years ago with with his work as he traveled around, this is in the eighties, he would travel around and as he did he would stop in local pet stores and just say, Hey, you guys, you know you guys get in any of the local rat snakes around. You know, he likes to, you want to see what they look like and bear with the barking. My wife's moving dogs again. Yeah. Um, and he would 
you know, get to see the different rat snakes, you know, in different areas. And one of his connections there used to be a, a little pet store down on in, in Key Largo, and he had made a connection through that pet store that he'd stopped at a number of times over the years during work time and going down there and fishing and stuff that he was able to get hooked up with a, a, a fish breeder in the area that, you know, uh, had, um, you know, would get them periodically coming to try to, to get her birds. And oh. so a little token of that, he collected a few by, by shining in this one stretch um, of woods that are still there. Um, but two of the animals came through that way. And so as a, as a, as a, as a memento, as a reminder of that, he keeps a little woven finch breeding nest hanging <laughs> in his cage as just like a, that's how they, that's, that's, that's how they came from. And you know what? Those, those things, you use them religiously. They're always up in there. That's interesting. Always. Every time I visit them, there's always one hiding up inside that cage, up inside that nest box. You know, it's those sort of things that just, that's, that's the fascination for me and why I do what I do because I've kept and bred so many things over the years from turtles to lizards to, to cobras, you know, everything over the years and having a connection with the animals that I work with just makes them more, more valuable to me on a personal level than anything else. Like, you know, some of the guys like you, Zach, who have some animals on loan for me, some of the fasciata, Many of those were ones I didn't, I, I, I acquired because I wanted to work with animals from different parts of the range and try to get them represented in captivity. They weren't ones I had an immediate connection to. Some of them, but not all of them. And so I was able to part with them and put them in hands of capable guys like you and a couple of the others that you know mm-hmm. to try to help ensure that they get attemptedly get established in, in the culture. But I, I you know, I, I didn't have to. I didn't have to pull teeth of my own to, to bear it apart with them, like <laughs> some of my others, yeah. you know. Uh, but I wanted to make sure that those animals were getting represented, attemptedly getting represented in, in, in the hobby for the few of us lowly, you know, yes. banded water keepers out there. I'm a proud banded water keeper. Right. Say that. Raise the fist. <laughs> Raise the fist. <laughs> so. Well, Chris, you know that's that's always been an interesting conversation. Um, you know, in terms of number of animals to keep, especially when you establish these lines of localities, and I think that's one of the trickier parts when you really start to dive deeper into it. Is just, you know, there is only so much time. There is only so much space. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but you never want these animals to disappear. And that's one of the things that, you know, recently I've had to come to terms with, too, and try to look at my collection and how I established that and really kind of forward thinking of like, well, how do I ensure that these animals are available in the future? You know, yep. so so what are some of your guidelines or things that go through your thought process when you're actually looking at your collection especially when it comes to locality animals of what you're focusing. Um, some of it is one, how passionate I am about working with them. That's, that's the biggest thing for me. I mean, there's certain animals that if I got down to only being able to keep one or two localities, it's really easy who those are going to be as much as I'm really hung up on a lot of others, you know, and those are the ones that I have the most connection to. Like my banded water snakes from where my dad and I used to go, 
you know, fishing at, my yellow rat snakes from my hometown county. Those are the things that I get most passionate about hanging on to and, 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 and will keep over anything else. Um, but some of it's just, you know, like uh, I've been finding a few dedicated and passionate Nerodia guys, as few and far in between as those exist, like, like Zach, where can go in and trust a group of animals, three or four animals from a particular locale to say, do your best. See what you can do with them. If you succeed with them, great. I want some babies back. If, if you fail, that's like, that's the way it goes. It's the way it's meant to be. I can't do anything about that. You know, and initially for me, when I'm getting one, getting a locality established, I, I tend to hoard back a good bit to make sure that I don't try to rely on other people. Like if I put animals in other people's hands, that's the one thing I, I learned years ago is you can't rely and trust on anybody else. You gotta, you gotta subsist off of yourself. So if you want something to be established, you gotta, it's gotta be in your hands to worry about. Cause once it goes out in somebody else's hands, it's out of your control. You can't do anything about it. If, if, if the guys like Zach who have stuff of mine out there, if they all fail, it's that's the way it goes. You know, for every reason. They decide not to breed and they get out of the hobby, the animals die, any number of different variables that exist out there. That's that's the that's the way it goes. You know, those those are the ones that those are the, the ones that I was more willing to not be as dedicated to as some of the ones that I still work with. And some of the ones that I'm, you know, working with now where I'm still always kind of tweaking my collection and going, All right, this project's gotta go because I need some more room for the next two, three, five years on some of these others. And maybe after five years, some of those will get scaled back. You know, particularly I've got some of these, you know, albino Gulf hammergrat snakes and anathristic yellow-bellied water snakes and an albino Everglades and these this new morph I had pop up in my albino project up with the Everglades and those sort of things. So for like, for me, I want to try to see some of those projects through a little farther and maybe you're keeping a few more of those around and not keeping some of the other projects that I'm not so hung up on and they'll go, they'll go to other people either just be sold outright or whatever, depending on how hung up I am on working with some of those. And, but that's the one thing, biggest thing I, I had to learn years ago is just to not, you know, it's nice to know that I know where some of my animals are, but at the same time, those people may never breed their animals. They may get out of the hobby. There's all those factors that we can't, we can't rest our laurels so to speak, um, with with any of these with any of these projects. You know, and that just is what it is. You just got to come terms with once it's out of your hands, it's out of your hands. You know, so I just try to see some of the projects through that mean more to me and ensure that I. Spread them out times in hopes that they can, you know, be established and found love enough by other people to keep them going. But as we've all seen over the years in the hobby, when certain breeders stop breeding stuff, they just disappear. You know, mm. you know, it's saw that with stuff that burnt Langerworth bred. You know, some of those lizards, like once he passed. It's almost none of them around anymore. Certain many of those lizards, outside of the tegus, you know, a lot of the other stuff just more or less vanished. You can find some of them if you look hard enough, 
you're going to pay a pretty flat penny for them nowadays, you know, if you can find them. And that's just the way it is, you know. It's, it's an unfortunate side to that, but unless you can find, a, find the people that are passionate enough about them to, to keep it going. I mean, I've seen some of my offspring that I've sent out bred in other countries, Canada and Europe and that sort of thing. And, uh, and I, it's awesome. I, I can't tell if they're going to keep going with them, what will come of them. I don't know. It's out of my control. So that's unfortunately the part of the hobby that we all just have to accept, I guess. Yeah. Well, this was flipping fantastic. So hopefully all is well. We didn't have some glitch that happened <laughs> earlier and people actually get to hear to this point. Um, it seems like the topic of locality is the like white whale of the podcast. Because uh, <laughs> the last episode I had with Chris Painshap, exactly what we talked about. Uh, but it's definitely a, a fun you know, subcategory of colubrid snake keeping. Uh, yep. And it's definitely one that in the past year... I can say that at least I have definitely dove into head first and have absolutely no intentions of getting out of the pool. Um, and, and then the final thing, cause I, I like to add these things from a biological point of view. Uh, there is actually a term that we use for these, these population phenotypic differences. So basically when you look at a yellow rat from North Carolina and you look at one from central Florida and you look at one from Southern Florida and you can kind of see these tells that, that are indicative of the of the locality, and that term is haplotype. So, okay. those of you who are into locality stuff and you want to like kind of see the biology behind this, and there is absolutely strong biology behind this. Um, haplotype, H A P L O type. Uh, learn about it. There's a really cool thing called a haplotype map, um, and it, 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 I'm just going to leave it there. There, you have homework. <laughs> now I feel like I'm in my damn classroom. All right. <clears throat> anyway, don't like giving people homework when they're doing this for fun. So you don't have to do the homework if you don't want to. Anyway, uh, so, yeah, that's that's it. Um, we're definitely going to have you back on because I there will be a Nerodia episode. And yes. I would love to have a locality Pantherophis episode. So, yes. Yeah, definitely happening. Um, but if if people want to get a hold of you, Chris, how do they go about doing that? Uh, easiest ways is uh, on Facebook is Dark Horse Herpticulture or on Instagram it's at Dark Horse Herp it's, that's the quickest way to, to track me down and see what I'm what I'm posting and playing with and what, what perked my interest while I was cleaning and took a picture of yeah yeah I love I love your cleaning days because that's when my feed gets Filled with really cool Nerodia pictures. Yep. And, you can uh, tell my w- the way my work cycle goes. I get three or four days. I'm just like bombed at work, and it's like if I get into my snake room, it's just like all I'm just doing is getting it done, getting it done. Mm-hmm. And then I have then I have a leisurely day. It's like, oh, you're really good looking today. Click, click, click. You're looking good today. Mm-hmm. Click, click, click. Ooh, I have a really leisurely day. I can take you out in the sun and take a picture of you too. Exactly. <laughs> Very cool. Well, thank you for coming on, and like I said. You will absolutely be a return guest if you're up for it. So oh, Definitely down. Definitely down yeah. chat with you, too. Awesome. This was fun. Thoroughly enjoyed this one. Um, and I also would like to thank the Marilia Python Network. Uh, we are proud members of the network um, and have absolutely no intentions of going anywhere. So if you like our show, 
give some of the other shows a listen. Reptile Fight Club's probably, in my opinion, the most unique herpetocultural podcast that's out there, and it, it's just fun how they'll pick a topic and talk, you know, give both sides of an argument. I love what Chuck and, and Justin are doing with that one. Eric and Owen with Marilia Python Radio, you know, obviously the founder of all this. Boas, 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 you know, all kinds of with Warren and Keith and Rob. Give them all a listen. Uh, if you want to get a hold of me, uh, you can find me on Instagram, Dr. Crawdad. I'm also on Facebook, uh, Zach Loafman, super easy. Um, and if people want to get a hold of you, Matt, how do they go about doing that? Start praying so you can get a hold of me. <laughs> <laughs> Give them a sedative and dart them. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, no, no. I'll joke and decide uh, Facebook or Instagram for Sarpamitra. Come on, guys. You got to have some laughter in life. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> nice. So, uh, Stand yeah. on your doorstep until you answer. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, there right. you go. Uh, so with that, uh, final episode of 2022 is in the books. Um, have a wonderful day, night, morning, evening, whenever you're listening to us, to this, hope it's a great time and later. <laughs>